This is an ABC podcast. When I was young, I always loved to drive and I used to go to the kitchen and put the plunger in the kitchen sink and pretend I'm driving and changing a gear. Just imagine it. A little girl pedal to the metal in her make-believe car with a plunger for a gear stick. And she wasn't dreaming of just any old car. When I was eight or nine, I used to watch TV, which it was a black and white at the time, and used to watch the race car driving. And for me, it was such amazing things to see one small car, how fast they could go, and these people, how could they control their car, go around the corner that fast. Gila wanted to be a race car driver. And I always say, I'm going to do that one one day. <laughs> Trouble was, it was the early 70s. I was disappointed. No girls allowed to do it. And Gila was in Iran. I'm Elizabeth Kulas. Welcome to Days Like These. What did you want to be when you were growing up? An astronaut? A superhero? Maybe a policewoman? For Gila, it was all about cars. But as a teenager, coming of age in Iran of the 1970s, her love of motorsport becomes highly problematic. Today, reporter Paria Tahizadeh shares the story of an Iranian refugee's dream to become a race car driver and the lengths that she'll go to to get behind the wheel. Gila Musari used to love watching car races on TV. But as a young teenager living in a small town outside Tehran, just watching was kind of getting boring. We went to family friend's house and I think it's six kids together, six, seven kids. We were all the same age, 12, 13 years old. They had the kids as well, we were playing. And as soon as I saw the adults distracted with the talking to amongst between themselves, so I went through, snuck in through their room. I went to my mom's handbag, grabbed the keys and snuck out. Trying to be as quiet as possible, Gila hustles the gang together. I told the other kids, come on, come on, I'm going to go drive. Would you like to come with me? And they said, yes, you know. I said, shush, don't tell anybody. Come on, come on, follow me. And I went inside the car. It was a white pecan. It's a sedan, five-seater sedan. I was curious to see what the pecan looked like. So after some digging around, I found a picture of it online. It just looks like a sharp square box, really. These are like the Toyota Corollas of Iranian cars. Small, dull and sensible. Not much of a speed machine at all. The kids started sitting in the car. We all was very quiet because we all knew that we were doing something dangerous, but exciting dangerous. As I started 
closing the door and started driving away from the house. And the kids were in the car, they were encouraging me to go faster. And I feel so like I'm a cool girl and race car driver, so I try to accelerate a bit more and make it more exciting. <laughs> like a TV I used to watch. <laughs> None of the roads in the town are paved. It's all gravel and kind of treacherous. And while young Sheila does know how to drive, she hasn't quite perfected turning corners. And as the road was turning, because as I said, it was a kids talking in their radio, we were so happy, I missed the turn, so I just go straight ahead. Because I knew I'd only to drive straight. (laughs) So for that reason, didn't see the ditch coming up. (laughs) So the front of the car got in a ditch. And next thing I could hear it, my dad, Sheila, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I knew it up in deep trouble, deep shit. <laughs> I grabbed my shoes and I told everybody, run. The kids all bolt in different directions to avoid Sheila's very cranky father. And I turned around and I saw my dad with other member of the family friend was running after us. Sheila's got a good head start, but now the sun's going down. I'm getting more hungry and thirsty and it was getting dark. I put my towel between my <laughs> legs and went back inside the house. The mood is tense. That was so upset. Mum was more upset because mum always was a strict one. They're disappointed in how incredibly disobedient she was. Mum and dad they always thought it was the first time I stole the car, but I didn't tell them. I used to do it so many times before that too. So after that, them hiding a car keys. This rebel child lived in Iran until she was 22. I have three sisters and one brother, and I'm second oldest in the family. Uh, We grew up in the suburb of uh, Babayan. She's what some people might call exotic looking. She has dark brown eyes, and in certain lights they're almost black. Her hair's dyed blonde, and nowadays she looks younger than she actually is. My mom was a hairdresser and my dad used to work in a factory, an oil factory. There's something else I need to tell you about her. Gila is my mum and she had an upbringing that was a lot more different to mine. I wasn't that type of a kid to study or sit one place. My mum was happy if I'd just finished my high school. Did they just expect you to kind of, like, get married, have kids and then see later? Like, they've done their job? My mom always says, you guys get married while you're under my roof. You have to do what I want you to do. Yeah. 
And that was not car racing. No, that was out of a question. <laughs> because yeah. it's a very boyish thing to do. Oh, it is. I, I said to my parents a few times, I want to become a car racer. And they said no, because that's pretty boyish. But my plan was different. <laughs> It's 1979 and Gila, my mum, now a teenager, is at home watching TV when she sees a report that Iran's ruling king, known as the Shah, is leaving the country. It's announced he's going on holiday. He'd been the ruler of Iran since 1941 and had become more and more autocratic in the 1960s and 70s and political unrest was growing. So it's understandable. He needed a break. When Shah left, it was a big news. It was all over the TV, radios. The thing is, this holiday was not a holiday. The Shah had fled his own country. I remember in that time before revolution, uh, Mujahideen used to send a pamphlet together and try to protest against the government and to become an Islamic country. Although fighting is still going on in some parts of Tehran, it appears that the revolution in Iran is all but over, with the fall early this morning, our time, of the government left behind by the Shah. With the Shah now in exile, Sheila and her friends can see the opportunity for change. Rohollah Khomeini, who had been exiled himself by the Shah, returns to Iran and leads the Islamic Revolution. And they used to say, oh, we have to make electricity for free. Why we pay for electricity? Why we have to pay for water? A left-wing Muslim group called the Mujahideen starts gaining popularity. Mum believes in their pledge to reduce crime and corruption and spread Iran's wealth more widely. This is a chance for change, and neither her or her sister want to miss out on being a part of it all. We pretend we're going to school, but instead we went to Mujahideen gathering. Because you thought that it was... They were right telling thing. the truth. Yeah. They were going, our future going to be better. Because we were so happy, we want to be happier. We want to be a better life. It sounded really promising. But obviously that was all lies. And life becomes a whole lot more dangerous under the Islamic regime. Especially for anyone who isn't Muslim. My mum comes from a family who believe in the Baha'i faith, who under the Shah had been free to practice their religion. With the Mujahideen's promise of a fairer life, Gila had never dreamed that these rights would be taken away. She was born in Iran and had lived there all her life. But by the mid-80s, Baha'is aren't even legally recognised in Iran. After the revolution, the government used to come in arresting people on the road, when, even when they had a book, Baha'i religious book. So we stay home 
Meili. So for their own safety, they leave the house as little as possible. When they do go out, though, they have no idea what to expect. I had that long hair up to my hip, and uh, I was walking to school, and uh, even the people I knew, the boys around our area, turned around and yelling and abusing the hell out of me. They used to yell and say, cover your fucking hair or I'm going to fucking cut your hair tomorrow. Pretty much this scared us into it, so we had to cover our hair. My mum starts wearing the veil just so men in her neighbourhood stop abusing her. Eventually, the hijab becomes mandatory. Four years after the revolution, Sheila is now married to my father. My dad's working long hours as a tailor, but it just isn't enough. My mum, now forced to wear the hijab and hide her religious beliefs, starts to think maybe, just maybe, she could help pay the bills. And she'd do it with the thing that she's always loved, driving. So five months pregnant with me, Gila decides to get a job and takes a shot at getting her truck license. It's not car racing, but it's as close as she can get. She's thinking, how hard could it be to get a license? I asked the guy, what should I do? And he gave me a dirty look, looked at me up and down, and he said, what license you want? I said, truck license. He said, go wipe your baby's bum. You're a female. You're not, we're not licensing any females for the heavy vehicle. Go home. And that was it. Uh, another dream crashed again. Mum's 22 now. She lives as a part of a persecuted religious minority. And she's not allowed to drive a truck. She has a baby girl to raise too. Me. When you were six, seven months old, my world, it becomes smaller and smaller. Because I can't go anywhere, I can't do anything, and I didn't want you become a female, have no goal. You have, you cannot do anything which you want to, because they took you away from me. I don't want it to take away from you too. But being Baha'i, my mum has so few rights. She's not even allowed to have a passport. And so she decides it's time. I sold everything, all my furniture, everything even, except my wedding ring, I sold everything. And then we gave the money to people to help us to escape from Iran. What was it like the night before you had to get up and leave to go and escape Iran? The night before, we couldn't tell anybody except my parents and your dad's parents, only the people knows. Even my grandma lived with us, with mom and dad. She didn't know because we were scared if somebody find out we're going to get captured in between the way. Mm-hmm. 
When I kissed my grandma saying goodbye, she thought I'm going to my own house and that was the last one when I saw him. Weren't you scared? No. Your father was a scared for me. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> so I came here for a better life. I left Iran for a better life. That's why I had no fear at all. I was just thinking there's a future, my future, my daughter's future. Escaping a country isn't as simple as just making it to a border. Apart from the obvious risks, you have to find a new country that's actually willing to take you in. And for my mum and I, that's Pakistan. My dad joined us three months later, and a couple of years after that, we make our way to the city of churches in Australia, Adelaide. It's where I grew up. Nice, quiet suburbs, but I definitely stood out like a sore thumb at school. But I wasn't the only one struggling. My parents had to learn a whole new language and try and get our family on our feet again. It's not until 10 years after we get to Adelaide that Sheila can finally focus on her own goals. She gets her heavy vehicle license. Finally, she can drive a truck. And I was so proud of it whenever I used to climb to the truck and started driving. It was just the they given the word to me. Uh, I can't describe it. I was so like a kid in the candy store. That's how I felt. <laughs> it, especially back in the 90s, 80s, right? Yeah, 92. Even in Australia, I don't think that there would have been a lot of female truck drivers. I'm not sure, to be honest, uh, because my my language was limited, my I couldn't speak much of English, so I couldn't mingle with the people. But when I was training, I was the only female. And I could see the boys were looking at me differently. For me, I'm one of the boys. (laughs) But by the early 2000s, we moved to Sydney and mum realises she's the closest she's ever been to her childhood dream of earning money by driving. Again, it's not race cars, but it's close enough. My mum is a bus driver. It was scary, I have to admit it, because I never drove in a city, not even with the car. But when I, the day, first day, we were practising in a quieter area, and the guy, the trainer was saying, oh, you'll be fine, you're doing good. Sheila's killing it. But then... He took me to the city, which was uh, full of people, traffic, and the roads are so narrow, and I was... I couldn't breathe. I thought if I start holding my breath, the bus be shrinking so I could go through these narrow streets. And once she overcame her fear of the narrow streets, there were other things to conquer. The first bendy bus came 
brand new bendy bus came to Laika Depot, guess what? I was the first to drive. <laughs> Then first double decker came to the depot. I was the first person to drive. And I was so happy. It's really hard work, a 12-hour day behind the wheel. And even in the early 2000s, there still weren't a lot of women drivers. And even fewer stood out like her. Only downside of a day's bus driving is people spat on me, throw food at me. They used to tell me to go back to where you come from. But for every piece of racist abuse, there are passengers who make her day. Best part of her driving for me is when people come in thanking me and they say how good a driver you are and God bless you, especially if the oldies that come in passing. And when I bring a bus close to the curb and kneel the bus for them to get off or get on easy. And they say, God bless you. I hope everything you wish you get it. Mum's been driving buses for almost 20 years now. Maybe some people, they don't respect the bus drivers, like respecting lawyers or doctors. And she's trained other women, like herself, who want a driving career. In Iran, females, they are lowest class. To come from that background and become a bus driver. Sheila's not stealing cars anymore, but I love that she's still blazing a trail. I love that she's doing what she loves. It's very big for me. It means a lot to be able to do all these things is... Like a bird opened the wings and you could feel the wind goes through your wings and feels good. For me, it's a good achievement in my life. Today's story was reported by Paria Tahizade. Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you have a story to share with us, please get in touch. You can send a voice memo from your phone or an email. Our address is dayslikethese at abc.net.au. You can also find me on Instagram or Twitter at Elizabeth Coolass. And if you haven't already, you can follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review. We love to know what you think and it helps new people find our show. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. This episode was made on the lands of the Gadigal and Wiradjuri Woiwurrung people. Our producer is Tamar Cranswick. Sound design and engineering on this episode by Matthew Crawford. The supervising producer was Kyla Slavin. Our script editor is Sophie Townsend. And our executive producers are Ian Walker and Tom Wright. Our theme song is Yeah Na by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. See you next time.
On the next episode of Days Like These, a silver brumby called Paleface rules Mount Kosciuszko. He is so majestic and so beautiful that he becomes a kind of rock star brumby, a celebrity horse. But then come the 2019 bushfires, and he vanishes. That is until Nicole, a horse lover from Sydney, decides to rescue some brumbies. And in the mix, she thinks she might have rescued Paleface. And she's pretty sure she knows how to identify him. I am a detective. I have become like Australia's leading pet detective in this situation. And I go to myself, I think pretty much a horse's penis is probably an identifying characteristic that we haven't considered before. We're going to nail it. We're going to identify him by the penis. That's next week on Days Like These. And while you're waiting for that episode to drop, why not take a listen to the great ABC Kids podcast, Fierce Girls? Each episode features the life story of some awesome Australian women and the cool things that they've done against all the odds. There are sports stars and scientists and everything in between, but each episode is essentially the history lesson you wish you had gotten at school. A recent standout for me was the episode about Nancy Wake, who was an Australian journalist and nurse who joined the French Resistance during the Second World War. Nancy later became a spy who went by the codename The White Mouse. You can find Nancy Wake's story and many others on the Fierce Girls podcast, which is on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts.